So turn your Bibles this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, in all honesty, it's a little bit of an awkward stopping point in Corinthians for us. And I was telling Darren this morning, I'm gonna, um, we're going to work our way through the text and we're going to preach it this morning um, full well knowing that five weeks from now, odds of you remembering much of this is slim. Uh, and yet it, it plays such a critical role in understanding uh, what Paul is about to do and where he's about to go with this. Um, how is Paul going to really deal uh, with the Corinthians at this point who are still mocking him, the super apostles who see him as a fool uh, and wanting him to kind of defend himself? How is he going to work through that? What's he going to do? And he approaches this in a very particular way. If we think of it from Paul's perspective, how do you deal with these spiritually deceived, foolish people? Because that's the reality. They say that Paul's the fool, but the reality is they have been fools because they've been duped and deceived uh, by these super apostles, these false teachers. How do you get through to them? Well, the, the text of Scripture actually tells us that getting through to a fool is really hard. <laughs> um, Proverbs 26, one of the most confounding pieces of Scripture, says it this way, whip for the horse, a bridle for the donkey, and a rod for the back of fools. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. We would read that and we would think, okay, well, at least I get the first part, some discipline. <clears throat> and elsewhere we're told that the heart of a child is full of foolishness and the rod of correction will drive it far from them. And so we would immediately think, okay, corrective discipline, increasing pain teaches you to stop living this way. Galatians points to that. Uh, people in their spiritual foolishness, Galatians 6, they mock God because they sow and they think they won't reap. In other words, they live in a world that they think there aren't real consequences for the decisions I make. That at its core is foolishness. So we think, okay, consequences is what's really going to teach. But then you hit Proverbs 17.10, a rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. <clears throat> and you're kind of left like, okay, then how in the world do you get through to a fool? Because apparently, apparently, consequences won't necessarily teach them. You can punish them and punish them and punish them, whether those are inflicted by authorities um, or whether those come as just natural consequences of life, what you, you reap what you sow. But we are aware that that's not actually necessarily going to change them. And then the confusing part there where we're told that you, it's easy to get into a debate with the fool and reduce yourself to being just like them. And so it's like you're just throwing mud at each other, and, and everybody's dirty at the end of it. But then if you don't engage with fools, they just grow increasingly arrogant. So we're kind of left like, okay, then what in the world do you do? And so on one hand, I, I think there's lots of methods. Like, I, it just, there's a complexity to this that I want you to see that it's really, really hard. How do I deal with foolish people in general but then even specifically, how would I deal with spiritually foolish people, people that are just totally duped and deceived? And um, if you've been a Christian long enough, you've had encounters with people that are spiritually deceived. Uh, they're maybe even a believer, but, but they're duped by something, and you're trying to contend with them, and you feel like you're wrestling with a fool. If we're honest, all of us, we wrestle with false teachers of our own hearts, foolishness of our own hearts that is wanting to lie to us, and, and how do we approach this? What do we do with this? Well, we need something to get their attention. 
That seems very clear. Something has to happen, and, and we need to have an interaction with them that somehow is like a neon sign that is their wake-up call. We use language like this all the time. Uh, we talk about someone in addiction. We'll say they haven't hit rock bottom yet. Right? They, there needs to be something. Maybe this will be your wake-up call. You'll see it when judges are adjudicating cases and they're sentencing someone. I'm hoping this gets your attention. We, we understand that part of the way it seems to work is something to get their attention. Well, one of those that is, seems to work is irony. And irony uh, is one of those moments where you expect one thing, but you get the opposite. And so it's like getting a tattoo of no regrets. I guarantee you there was some regret there. Uh, or I, I love the humor of irony, and I think it can be funny so many times. I hate three things. Number one, vandalism. Number two, irony. Number three, lists. I just think it's funny. And sometimes irony can be humorous that way. But it can also strike a deeper chord. Uh, hell is ironic, actually. Um, people live their whole life, and all they want is their desires fulfilled, and yet when Jesus describes hell, he describes it as a play, place of constant longing and never fulfilling. It's this ironic judgment. It's the complete opposite of what you want. They don't want anything to do with God here, ultimately. Certainly don't want him to rule my life. Maybe I want to be a spiritual person, but I don't want God in charge of me. And certainly not, he's not going to be Lord of my life. And then you get to hell, and they could cry out to God for eternity, and they'll never hear from him. Okay, you don't want God? That's what you get. No God. And so you see this ironic judgment, and it's clearly intended. They, the, sinner, the foolish sinner wants to follow their heart here. And then they get and, and do life with no consequence, no ultimate accounting for eternity. And they get to hell, and there's nothing but, but eternal, eternal regret and the gnawing of their conscience like a worm that would eat at you. And so irony can be a powerful tool to deal with the foolish, and that's exactly what Paul's going to use this morning. Uh, our big takeaway this morning would be that the path to the deceived Corinthians, ultimately, while the mechanism might be irony, the pattern, the, the pathway to do this is Christ's strength. That's what they need, right? They need Jesus' strength. They need resurrection power. Um, if you've ever argued with a fool or someone that's deceived, you know something else has to happen. They have an answer for everything. They have an excuse for everything. If you've ever had to discipline a fool, you know something has to happen. And Paul is full aware that he's going to use the best rhetoric that he has, the best argumentative method that he has, and, and he is going to put on a master class of argumentation here uh, in, the, in the following verses. He knows what really needs to happen is Christ's strength. And what he's been teaching the Corinthians all along, all the way from 1 Corinthians, Paul is getting the sense is the way you really get Christ's strength is through his weakness and through his humility. And so that in mind, what we're going to read this morning, the verses we're going to work through, uh, verses 16 through 21, are really form as a kind of preface to everything Paul's going to say from here all the way through verse 13 of chapter 12. And so it's really important to understand what he's saying and why he's saying here and how it affects the structure. And that's what we'll try to see this morning, to see how exactly Paul's humility becomes an open door, a vehicle, a, a sound system so that they might experience the strength of Christ. So 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 16, Paul says this, I repeat, let no one think me foolish. That repetition is from the first verse of chapter 11 where he said, I'm going to be a fool when I boast here. I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool 
so that I too may boast a little. What I am saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves, for you bear it if someone makes slaves of you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say we are too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. And so when we start thinking about what Paul's doing here in this section, we can actually think of it the way we think about a play, and that's really ultimately what he's going to do. Uh, there's two main things that he's doing in this text, just so you understand. First of all, he's going to describe their true condition. It's really important that you communicate to foolish people, deceived people, spiritually deceived people, where they're really at, what's really going on. How would the Bible describe their current condition? And, and so Paul does that. He doesn't beat around the bush. Uh, he, he doesn't hold back here. He's got relational connection with the Corinthians. He views himself like a spiritual father to the Corinthians. And so he's going to tell them, hey, this is where you're at. This is what God's word would say you're at. A spiritually deceived person needs help. They need somebody to take who they are, pour it through scripture and say what drops out the bottom is who you really are. This is who you really are. The religious leaders come to John the Baptist. They say, baptize us. He says, bring me fruits of repentance. They think that they have arrived. He pours them through the truth of the word and what drops out is unrepentant, arrogant people. You've got to help people understand where they're really at. And that's what Paul's going to do. That's one of the things he's going to do specifically in these verses. The other thing he's going to do, though, is this is a setup, a preface to what we call the full speech. We've called it the full speech ever since a German theologian about the late 1600s. He's studying through it, and he's like, wow, this is amazing. Paul keeps calling himself a fool. He keeps referencing a fool. Verse 1 of chapter 11, he says, I'm going to play the part of a fool. It's really important, the way he lang the language, language that he uses there. I'm going to play this part. He tells us here in 16 through 21, I'm talking like a fool. I'm talking like a fool. This is as a fool would talk. You get to the end of this in chapter 12, verse 11. He said, I just was playing the part of a fool. So we've got these bookends. And so we call it the fool's speech. And Paul is going to help them understand how they should actually view themselves and he's going to shine a light on how they view him by playing a very particular role. And so we want to unpack both of those realities this morning. Uh, the super apostles had convinced the Corinthians that a real leader is strong and wise and noble. And nobility that in that day meant wealthy. It also meant respectable. And you might remember that Paul already has tried to tell them that it's not man's strength, it's not man's wisdom, it's not man's nobility or man's wealth, it's God's strength and God's wisdom and God's wealth. But the super apostles had come and said, no, this is what a true leader is. And since Paul is weak and Paul is poor, Paul's not very smart, he's no kind of leader. He's no apostle, we are the true apostles. And so Paul's got to find some way to rain on their parade. He's got to find some way to pop their bubble help them understand it we could boil it down this way the corinthians are in the shameful spot of actually being foolish slaves to these false teachers and he so he describes them in five ways we can see it right here in the text that we look he said you gladly bear with fools being wise yourselves and so he's doing a play on words he's saying the super apostles are the real fools i'm gonna play the part of a fool 
And he describes where they're at. He said, you bear it if someone makes slaves of you. And you got these five words, devours you, takes advantage of you, puts on air, strikes you in the face. Let's just take them a little, little bit of time to understand the condition, slaves of you. It's the middle voice in the language. What do, why does that matter? Because what he's saying, he says, is that the super apostles are enslaving them to themselves. What does that mean and how does that work? You might remember from a few weeks ago, how does false teaching get an inroad, whether it's coming out of my own heart, whether it's somebody I hear on the radio, somebody I watch on TV, somebody I read in a book, how does false teaching really get an inroad into my life? It has to go after my desires. The desires, hedonai, hedonistic things, it's what I want. The desire itself may not be bad, but a false teacher comes along and fans the flames and says, that's what you should pattern your life about. You're right to want to be strong. You're right to want to be wise. You're right to want to be respected. You're right to want to be wealthy. You're right to, to have all these things and want these things, and that's what you should pattern your life about. And not only that, not only are you right to want and desire all these things, but that's what Jesus wants for you. And so if you don't have these things, you're probably not a very good Christian. Hey, by the way, have you noticed how Paul doesn't have any money and how Paul's always getting beaten up and how everybody doesn't respect Paul? He's not a very good Christian. Definitely not a good apostle. And so what happens is this inroad of our own desires, these false teachers, these super apostles have come in, and they've actually uh, rechained, re-enslaved the Corinthians to their desires. See, Jesus has come to set us free from being ruled by our desires. Jesus has come so I no longer have to pattern my life after my covetousness. Jesus has come so I no longer have to be ruled by my anger. I no, have to, no longer have to be dominated by my lust. I no longer have to be uh, ruled and, and chained to my desire to be respected. Jesus has come to deliver me from all those things because I now find my identity in his strength and in his wisdom and in his nobility instead of always trying to find my own. We understand or we should understand as believers what it's like to be free in Christ. Galatians, they came along and they enslaved them back to the law. And when Paul addresses their deception, he says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you, or who has put you under the spell? I put a spell on you, he says. And what is the law there for them? They're rechained back under the law. Why is that even attractive? Why is the law attractive to us as Christians? Why is legalism even attractive? Because it sells us this. If you tick these boxes, you're a good Christian. And it's a lot easier to tick boxes than to love God and others. It's a lot easier to give lists to people than to ask people to be discerning. It's a lot easier to say, I've, I have my perfect attendance award, uh, my Sunday school pin, my Sunday school ribbon, I got the Timothy Award in Awana, than it is to ask, am I really dying to myself and seeking after God? And so they are enslaved. He says, you are, you're a slave. You know what you are? You're slaved. You are controlled, once again, by your desires. Now, that's hard to argue with. I, now, I think foolish people, deceived people, whether it's you or me or the Corinthians, when we go through deceptions, we, don't, we think we are free. But i just like to ask people, you know, do you really consider your life? Like, what really dominates your thinking? What really rules your desires? When do you get angry? What makes you sad? What do you daydream about being able to do? What's your real focus and your longing of your heart? And you begin to realize there's so much conflict in our lives. From whence come wars and fightings among you, don't they come from here? Your hedonite, your desires, set on fire. And so they're slaves. He said, you're, you know what? Jesus came to set you free, and you're enslaved again. You're ruled by what you want. 
He doesn't stop there. He says you're devoured and taken advantage from. Uh, we can just link them together. Uh, the, the reality is taking advantage is a focus on the financial aspect. Devoured is them just consuming them. Psalm 14.4, this is common language that God used to describe how false teachers operate. Psalm 14.4, he says it this way, Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? And Jeremiah, he talks about false teachers who eat the flock rather than talk about fleecing the flock. They don't, they don't just take their wool, they eat them. They consume them. It's an attitude from these leaders that you exist for me. I think that's so easy for all of us. You can tell that's happening in a marriage when the husband has this seething undercurrent of anger that he doesn't get the respect he deserves. Because what he's really declaring in that moment is you exist for me. This is the whole problem when Jesus is trying to, to, to disciple the disciples about how to be leaders. He said, this is the way the Gentiles rule, but that should not be the case with you. When you're in a position of leadership, it's not that people exist to make you feel good. They exist for your identity. They exist for your security. Rather, it exists for you to demonstrate Jesus to them. And how does Jesus lead? By love and truth and self-sacrifice. But that's never how a super apostle is going to lead. I'm going to consume them. You exist for me. I devour them. And then ultimately that expression is even fiscally, financially. Uh, they want to preach that it's Jesus' design for all the good Christians and all the good apostles, the super apostles, to be wealthy. This is like pyramid scheme. All of you should give to me, and this is somehow going to make you wealthy. And there's only one person gets rich in that, the guy at the top. It's amazing. If you start doing research into financial advisors, how many people out there have a new scheme for you to get wealthy. And ultimately, the one that really gets wealthy is them as you buy their scheme to get wealthy. He says they consume you. They devour you. They're not seeking your, your good. They're not seeking to help you grow and to change. They are just in this for what it gets them. Paul had come and said, I'm not even going to take a dime from you. And they want to say he's in it for himself. <laughs> the super apostles are consuming the flock and taking advantage of them. But the, the Corinthians would resist that, and so then he even points out how these false teachers, the super apostles work. He says, they put on airs and they strike you in the face. I'm just going to link these together because it's the way they exercise their authority. They're boastful, braggadocious people. Um, <laughs> they, they'd be the kind of guys you could easily imagine in Corinth, them getting up on a Sunday and saying, you don't know how lucky you are to have me. Right? Um, you know, the hard thing about bragging is it's really hard to brag and not lie. You're, you're going to be prone to exaggeration. You're going to be prone to make much of you, and that's what these guys did. The, these super apostles talked about their heritage as a way of controlling people. I'm of this, and I'm of that, and I've got all this together. Um, you should follow me because of who my dad and my granddad and my great-grandpa were. That's what you should do. Uh, you know, I don't, I, don't, I don't know the motives of all these guys. I've heard this, say these kind of things over the years. But I've heard different preachers get up and say things like, my dad was a preacher, my granddaddy was a preacher, my great-granddaddy was a preacher. And I'm like, so? My dad was an electrician. 
My great-grandpa got thrown in jail for punching out a cop on the side of the road in West Virginia. I think God calls who he's going to call. But you, you think your the heritage matters? Not that way. But these guys, it mattered. And they expect you to defer to them. And they, and they look at what an amazing preachers we are. I mean, you should listen to me. Look at this. Look how much I know and my great oratory skills. And uh, number one fear that people have is speaking in public. And so these guys capitalize on that kind of stuff. And they, and they abuse it because they talk about how wonderful they are, how amazing they are. And then if they want to control you, if you really get out of line, they smack you in the face. It's so fun. It was so funny as I'm reading through uh, commentaries this past week and studying uh, they, them all saying, man, you know, maybe this is just a euphemism. Maybe it's this. And then they'd all lay and they'd say, but the clearest indication seems to be they're actually walking around slapping people. And that just continues to astound me. But then if you think about it, isn't, don't the religious leaders do that to Jesus? Smack him. Somebody hit this guy. Don't they do that to Peter? Somebody hit this guy. How dare you speak up? Don't they stone Stephen? He tells, he tells one of the qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy is that they can't be brawlers and strikers. They can't be going around hitting people to bully them and control them. Leading sheep is hard for the best of someone. Leading sheep and goats can be abysmally difficult. Imagine doing that and you're a false teacher. You don't even have the presence of the Holy Spirit in you. Well, then at that point, smacking somebody around seems like a good method to them. You know what you need? You need somebody to smack you around. You ever thought that about somebody? I'm just, I'm being serious, right? When I was in eighth grade, I had a horrific bully in my life. Just the guy was horrible for months and months and months. Months and months and months. And I had people in my life tell me, you know what he needs? You know what he needs? He needs somebody to smack him around a little bit. He needs somebody to put some sense into him. This idea of, of dealing with foolish people or hard-nosed people and the way these guys led was by hitting people. Can you imagine Jesus doing that when his disciples are saying, let's call down, should we call down fire and brimstone in the city? He's like, no. Uh-uh. And meanwhile, he's getting down on his hands and knees and washing feet of really obstinate people. And they were his closest disciples. Not these guys. They're bullies with their authority. They physically intimidate. They use their, their physical presence. They use their, their mental acuity. They use their linguistic skills to bully and intimidate people to get them in line. This is who they're ruled by. This is who the Corinthians are falling in line with. And we would ask, why would anyone endure that? I don't know if you've seen the clip. I mean, you've seen the clip of the preacher. He's like just berating his congregation at one point, right? Um, like if it, if it wasn't true, it'd be sad, right? I mean, it's, it's like, oh man, it'd be funny. But like he's calling like one guy out. He's like, you're the worst member I've got. And you're like, what? He's calling out guys in the sound booth. One of the guys, he says, now your mom always tries to get the way. Get out of the way, mom. I'm dealing with him. I mean, it's like, wow, this is a scene. Why do people endure this? I was at a service one time, and the, the preacher got upset. It was, it was a camp service. There was these kids in the front row, and they kept talking, maybe front or second row, and he had just had it, right? He had had it. And, and I'll just be honest with you. I've preached in enough camps, enough settings. 
Preaching to hundreds of teenagers at the same time can be very difficult. And these kids are just talking the whole time, talking the whole time, talking the whole time. And I, and I think there's probably an appropriate time to say, hey, could you please stop talking while I'm preaching? Like, I think there would be. But he just, he'd had it, and he was mad. And, and so he, he called them out right there on the second row. He's like, you need to quit talking. I'm talking. You quit talking. There's this really awkward moment because one of the kids was from Ecuador, and the other kid was his translator. That's a bad moment because that was Tuesday night. We got to get all the way to Friday. How many people do you think are listening to him now? There's no question at times in my parenting, I've parented by intimidation, not loving leadership, for sure. We get the, we get the temptation. The, the question we ask is why they put up with that? Why would they endure this? Well, because they are enslaved. At the end of the day, the super apostles are feeding them what they want to eat. They're being revealed to be fools who seemingly no pain, no pain they can experience, no, nothing they can endure from the pulpit is enough to wake them up to how duped they are. They're deceived and they're bullied and they're too scared and they're too intimidated to do anything about it. How in the world can Paul get through to this crowd? How can he contend with deceived, foolish Corinthians who think he's the fool for not following along, for not getting in line? How can he contend with people who think weakness is the problem when Paul knows it's through his weakness that Jesus is shown to be strong? Well, the path to the deceived Corinthians is Christ's strength through Paul's humility. And that brings us to Act 3, this fool's speech. Now, the full speech is, is this whole section that goes right from where we're at. is kind of the preface or introduction. And it goes all the way down through chapter 12, verse 13. Now, I'm not going to read all that this morning, but I will tell you exactly what Paul's doing. The full speech is Paul, in this moment, plays a part. He plays a role. And the role he plays is what was known in the Greek theater as the mime or the fool. It was the comedic character that existed in every Greek play, almost. Some of them were written as comedies, some of them uh, were not, but there'd still be a fool. You'd need a little bit of laughter in there sometimes to swallow what the other messages of the, of the moment. And, and, you know, modern cinema does this. You can have drama, you can, you can have even, even horror, and there'll be drops of humor mingled in throughout it to kind of break the tension, and that helps you to continue watching. Books do that. You need a moment of laughter. You need a, a moment of just like emotional release to be able to continue to enjoy what you're watching. And the Greek plays did that, and they, they were running around and very popular hundreds of years before Paul is ever writing Corinthians. It's actually fascinating. Uh, we have some of them that have been translated, some of them have been recovered, some of them have been lost, others are portrayed in pottery. And so we can actually get a really clear picture of what it was like to have a fool or a mime in the play. And that's what Paul's doing. What Paul's doing in this entire section is he's playing the part of a fool. And it's key, it's key now to understanding how he's getting through to these Corinthians. Let me walk you through this in a couple ways. First of all, let's talk about the distinctives of the fools. There are three distinctives about the role or the character of the fool in a Greek play that are really important to understanding what's happening. Three markers. First of all, they wore specific costumes. Second of all, there was exaggerated humor. And third, they were laughed at, not with. Let me walk you through this costumes 
<clears throat> when you went to a Greek play, <clears throat> and this could be set up in an amphitheater setting, a theater setting, or it could be as simple as a town square. They put up a little platform. In a Greek play, all the main characters wore boots, kind of higher-heeled boots, to elevate them up enough to kind of look up to them if they were in, the, in, a, in a city square. You kind of see them above the crowd. So if you got, because you always got people that stand up, right? You always got people that ruin your view. And so you got these guys high heels. The fools always performed in sock feet. And so they were always a little bit lower than everyone else. It was a visual cue. This is a person that's lower than all the rest of us. Uh, they usually wore costumes that were very uh, obvious and made them ugly. The Greeks and the Romans thought that beauty was a sign of God's approval and affirmation of you. They thought ugly was a sign of, God, of the God's disapproval of you. And so their, their costumes would have exaggerated facial features. Uh, they, <clears throat> one of them was the wizened old man. The wizened old man, they'd always shave him bald, and they put a huge, unkempt, flowing beard uh, in one play where he constantly is tripping over it everywhere. And so everybody knew who this guy was. They, um, if they were slender, they'd put fat suits on them. So they, because we all know, right, the 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 the, the chubby sidekick uh, trope, right? Like I'm, I would never be an action hero. I'm built for comedy. I get that. I'm short. I'm fat and I'm bald. I get it. I get it. Right? And so it's humor. It's humor cues. So that when you go to the play, even if you don't know the play, and they had some particular plays that everybody loved that they would do time after time after time, but any, any Greek or Roman citizen, they went to a play, and this guy would walk out. They immediately knew that's the funny guy. And so costumes. Everybody knew who the, who the fool was. Secondarily, the exaggerated humor. <clears throat> now, Humor frequently is taking something that's really happening and just making it bigger or exaggerated. If you were to ask most people back when either Bush was president to do an imitation of that President Bush, they actually weren't imitating President Bush. They'd imitate either Dana Carvey doing Bush Sr. or Will Ferrell doing Bush Jr. That's who they imitated. And all those guys did was take certain ways they spoke or they talked and they would exaggerate it out. And that's where the humor is. When someone imitates someone, it's exaggeration, and that's what you're actually laughing at. And, and so there's several speeches where Bush Jr. Uh, stumbled over his words. Just did. Um, he was not the greatest orator in the world. That's not a reflection of his presidency. just wasn't. Some guys are better than others. We're seeing that in Corinthians. And so whenever Will Ferrell would do his speaking, though, he'd make up words, he'd stumble over his words all the time. It's exaggerated. And so these fools were exaggerated characters of real people. And so one of them, for example, was the braggadocious soldier. Uh, we've always got people around that they get really tough once the battle's done. Uh, some of you might remember uh, Steve Urkel from back in the day, nerdy kid who loved cheese, right? I think the show was called Family Matters. And so anytime there's a conflict or whatever, uh, he'd always be behind some big, strong guy saying, oh, hold me back, hold me back, hold me back. And you're a little bit like, yeah, get out of the way, see what's going to happen. You're going to get knocked out. But he gets real tough when the battle's over. Or Barney Fife, who's always got the bullet in his pocket, always ready for a fight, but we all know it was his coward. Well, that's the way the fools were. They would exaggerate behavior. We've all been around people. It's like I told you before that the guy I lived with for a while, I was living in Chicago, he told us that his dad used to be in the Navy when they formed the SEALs. His dad was just too dangerous for him to be accepted in the Navy SEALs. 
It's the same guy who told us one time he was running from some Dobermans, jumped over a barbed wire fence, fell on the other side, and was, luckily he had his K-bar survival knife that had the sewing kit in it, and he laid there while the dogs were barking and stitched his own leg up. It's always people like this, right? And so one of the fool's characters would exaggerate that kind of behavior. And so it's exaggerated humor. It would take real life, real life examples, and blow it out of proportion to make it a big deal. And then thirdly, they're laughed at, not with. It wasn't uncommon for them to be slapped around. It wasn't uncommon for the slapstick uh, to be extensive. Um, But people who played the part of the fool they didn't necessarily weren't widely respected either. Because people confused at times the role with the identity. And so they really are laughing at fools, not with them. It's not the same as a lot of comedy that we have today where somebody, a stand-up comic, tells stories and, and you're laughing with them, not necessarily at them. A number of years ago when I was working at camp, we always did funny time. And so... Uh, played a number of characters in different skits. One of my least favorite characters I had to play was Tallulah. It was called the Northern Pioneering Dating Show. And I got to be the girl. Oh, I love that part. Blonde wig, woman's moo-moo. Uh, and I came out there, and, and to be funny, I had to talk in a high-pitched voice the whole time. Bachelor number one, and bachelor number two. And bachelor number three. And then there came a point at the end when I had narrowed it down to the guy I want. And then I was supposed to drop into a deep voice. And I'd say, I'll take bachelor number three. He's my man. Everybody would laugh, right? That's fine. It's cool. No big deal. I like being funny. Skits are fun. Except there was one problem. We usually did funny time Thursday night, and that was better. But sometimes we'd have storms that were you know, going to be coming later in the week. So we did it earlier. And one family week, we did it on Tuesday night. It made my life a living nightmare. Because to everybody, all week, I was Tallulah. All the time. Everywhere I went. Hey, Tallulah! Everywhere. And it was one dad in particular. He would not let it go. I mean, it was a sanctification test for Steve. Because he couldn't differentiate between a role that you were playing and an identity of who you really were. And, and you're being, at that moment, you realize, you're walking across, it's Thursday afternoon, and you walk into the dining hall, and this guy jumps up, Oh, Tallulah! And everybody laughs. You're not being laughed with anymore. You're being laughed at, and it's miserable. And so lots of times, the guys that would play the fools were the starting actors, the low-down guys, people that's the only thing you get. Lots of them, they would sleep in the city square while the other actors would be hosted. And so in the full dynamic of the Greek theater, these are not respected people. Now, this is exactly what Paul is going to do. He's going to take on this role. Because what he's saying is, you keep calling me a fool because I won't brag like the super apostles. Then you know what I'll do? I'm going to use the culture's entertainment. This was the entertainment. I'm going to use your laughter. I'm going to use what you delight in, ironically, 
sharply, it's called biting irony, to show you how you really view me and then ultimately how you really view Christ. So let me show you how he does it. Number one, as he plays the part of the fool, he wears the costume. You can see it in 11, 1, he, 11 and 16 through 21, and then in 12 and 11. Uh, Paul knows this is going to be read to them. So somebody's going to stand up in Corinth and read this letter to them. They're not going to have the visual cues of the costume to know fool. They're, they're just not. So he wants to make it very clear to them. 11.1, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. This foolishness, and this is fascinating, he uses a completely different word for fool in 2 Corinthians than he did in 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians, it's where we get the word moron from. An unintelligent one is the way we'd understand it. An unknowing one. You can be a fool because you don't have information. You're ignorant. This is a fool by choice. And so what he's saying is, I hope that you'll bear with me while I play the role of the fool. And the word he uses is the word they used in Greek theater to describe this player, this actor. In 16 through 21, I repeat, let no one think me as this fool but even if you do, accept me as this fool. In other words, you want to think that I'm a fool? You want to think that I don't have it together? You want to think that I'm weak and I'm foolish and I'm unwise and I'm not noble? Fine, then I will play that part. What I'm saying with this boastful confidence, I say not as the Lord would. This is not how God would see me. This is not how God perceives ministry. This is how a fool would. And so, that's, and so he's telling them, he's giving them all the cues so they understand. You get down towards the end of it, in chapter 12, verse 11, he says this, I have been a fool. You forced me to it. And so Paul's telling them, I'm putting on a costume. From 11, 1, or 11, 16, down through 12, 13, that entirety is Paul playing a role of the Greek fool in theater. Secondarily, he plays the different parts. I'm not going to go super deeply into this this morning, just for sake of time. And so this is the part we'll have to come back to in the new year. But when you realize that this is what Paul is doing, one of the full stereotypes, there's, there's about eight or nine stereotypical full parts. Paul plays five of them in this section. They are so close that at points his language would almost seem borrowed from Greek plays. And so, I, like I said, I can't tell you all of them for time, but let me give you some of them. One of the stereotypes was a leading slave in a Greek play. Um, there's a pretty famous one. It's called, um, I'll try to put this in culturally acceptable language, but the two idiots, um, and they're donkeys is how they're depicted. And their master gets these two guys, and they're basically bumbling idiots, two slaves, to go hatch a plan to get him money so he can buy this girl that he wants. And they're trying, they find a guy, and they're trying to make this deal with him, and they're trying to convince him of the money that he should give them. And so these two slaves um, uh, brag about how trustworthy they, were, they are. One of them is a guy named Labinus, and he says this, he's known for his inflated ego, and how proud he is of himself. I'm reading to you from the Greek play. He says this, By our wit, by our wiles, by our deceits, our machinations, our shoulders are bold, displaying courage in the face, listen now, of rods, 
We have defied hot irons, crucifixion, chains, fetters, dungeons, stocks, manacles, and harsh whippers well acquainted with our backs. Look in your text in chapter 11, verse 21. To my shame, I must say we're too weak for that. Whoever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. This is one earlier in the play. Labanus says, am I not descended from other slaves? Can I not be trusted as a slave? Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked at night and a day. I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. If you and I are not aware of Corinthian culture, we don't understand that what Paul just did is that was being read in church. Is every single member of that church would have thought of Labanus this exaggerated slave who is frankly the frankly the punchline of every joke in that play and what he claims is you should trust me because of how much i've endured the false teachers are saying that the real mark of success is your strength paul's saying you say that i'm weak fine i'll play the part of a fool then And let me tell you what I've gone through. And in this moment, there's irony because we know Paul has endured these things as a good servant of Jesus. There's another stereotype of the soldier. There's one, I was reading it this past week. Um, He goes out on a battlefield and he's got his little guy that's helping him. And it's kind of his servant and, and the soldier is the fool. And they're walking around this battlefield afterwards and he asks them, do you have your tablet with you? And he says, yes, and on this tablet, they're literally marking down everybody he killed to prove how powerful he was. And, and, but the, the conversation goes something like this. Um, do you remember at this part in the battle when I, when I slayed uh, these three guys? And the, the servant says, yes, I have the ten marked down that you killed there. And do you remember when this part of the battle, how I killed these other five? And he says, yes, I marked down the 50 that you killed there. And the, the soldier goes, oh, you're right. I must, be, I must not remember correctly. And do you remember when we went over the walls and I took control of, 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 of a thousand gold pieces? And the servant says, yes, I have it written down how you conquered 10,000 gold pieces. And the soldier walks around and he goes, ah, I'm so glad you remember correctly. By your count, I must have killed some 700 and taken a million. Yes, sir, you're right. Meanwhile, he had been too scared to even go into the battle. It's, it's in Greek theater, and in Roman theater, it was a mockery of the generals. Because when generals died and the, at their sarcophagus, they would literally etch in stone all their exploits. Now, unfortunately, the exploits of a soldier all too often are the killing of other people. I'm not knocking soldiers. I'm not. But they were always trying to outdo each other in Roman culture to show how powerful they were and how strong they were. And so the comedic, exaggerated guy was a guy who actually is a coward 
who never went into battle, but he boasts more than everyone else. It's a playoff of award that they would give, the Corona Morales. The Corona Morales was actually a medallion that they would give to the first soldier over the wall of a city. And what do they say? This is the way the soldiers were back. They said, I'm the first over the wall. What does Paul say? I was the first let down running from the city. Like I said, I don't have time this morning. Every single one of these plays off of a Greek full and very real plays. And he goes from one to the next to the next. Uh, there's the wise old man. There's the guy who says, look at how much I know. Look at how much I know. I know so much. And, and the, the audience knows this guy's actually a bumbling idiot who doesn't know anything. The whole time, though, he's playing off how smart he is, how smart he is, how smart he is. And they get at one point in the play, and they're like, give us more information then. Give us some of your wisdom. And this is his response. Uh, well, actually, it's such great wisdom, you could never comprehend it. And the whole crowd would roar with laughter because we know in that moment, really, the only one who doesn't get it is him. We're laughing at you, not with you. What does Paul say? I know of a guy who's went into heaven, and I can't even tell you what he saw. Paul plays the parts, and he receives the ridicule. Paul knows that they are mocking him. But they're not just mocking him. They're mocking Christ at work through him. They are taking the very real things that Paul has done and have happened in him and through him to advance the kingdom, and they're saying that that's to be despised, and that's nothing more than Greek comedy. And he says, really? This is what it is? The fact of the matter is none of us wants to be led by Barney Fife. None of us wants to be guided by Gaston's sidekick. None of us wants the wisdom of the bumbling idiots of, of 101 Dalmatians. None of us thinks that Lucille Ball and her sidekick in the chocolate factory are a great place to look for how you should run a business. The fact of the matter is when we perceive and when the Corinthians and their deceived state perceive Paul as a fool, what they really are perceiving as a fool is the plan and the power and the working of God. As the Corinthians would have heard this whole full speech read to them, it's easy to imagine how their faces would have become downcast. And they would not even be able to look the reader in the eye. Knowing internally how they've truly mocked this apostle. This man of God who has served them and has loved them sacrificially and how they have taken truth. And this is what fools do. They take truth and they make it a lie. They, they take error and they say it's right. And when we're deceived, when you're deceived, when my heart's deceived, when my own flesh tells me live for your desires, this is what we do. And ultimately what they're realizing is they are no different from the guys who carved this. It's the first piece of graffiti that we have about Christendom. They carved it into one of the seven hills of Rome. And it says, Aleximos worshiping his God. They could not conceive of a God who would die. And so Jesus is drawn as a man on a cross with a donkey's head. You see, Paul understands that it is impossible for us to run from the weakness and brokenness of life because we're ashamed of it and to call it foolishness and not mock God because that's his plan that's his method that's the course that he has charted for all of us and so we come then 
to the final act. We go back to those verses in Proverbs. We think about how hard it is to have the wisdom of dealing with foolish people, and in particular, spiritually foolish people. I think some of the most difficult people to to deal with are people that are foolish, they're Christians, or at least spiritual, and so then they're ready to argue text of Scripture all day, and they're duped. It's so difficult to contend with my own heart when I want to believe lies that say God's on mission for me to have the best Steve now. How do you deal with them? How do you have the wisdom to know when do you talk to a fool so that they're not convinced in their own mind? When do you not debate with a fool because you don't want to be like them? When are consequences brought to bear if you're in an authority position? When do you realize that even a hundred stripes aren't going to enter into their back? It's easy to stoop to the level of a fool. How do you do it? You do it this way, loving truth communicated through humility. Now the New Testament gives us a number of ways to think about that. Loving truth communicated through humility. You go in Matthew and you're going to confront someone and Jesus says, think about the log hanging out of your face first before you go after the speck in their eye. Perceive sin in yourself that way. You know what that's called? Humility. Galatians 6, you go to help one who is overcome in the burdens of sin. He says, considering yourself because you could do the same sin. Do you know what that is? That's called humility. How do you pierce into the life of a fool, the spiritually deceived, loving truth, communicated through humility. And so Paul has done that through the fool's speech by taking on this role. And so we see Paul's humility being willing to do that, being willing to play the role that they're laughing at already, being willing to embrace what they are mocking. But Paul does something else at the end of the fool's speech that really jumps out to me. Paul owns why they're deceived. And and so let me show you this to you. He says it this way in chapter 12, verse 7. To keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Now, I'm not going to unpack the thorn and what it means and all that. I just want to say this. It's very, very, very clear that Paul viewed the thorn as something, hear me now, that hindered his ministry. Paul thought, hear this, I would be stronger without this weakness. That's the whole lie of the super apostles. Weakness is bad. Strength is better. Ministry is better. And Paul is telling them in honest humility in this moment, I get it. I get it. I know what it's like. I know what it's like to have a thing that makes me weak and to really believe if that wasn't there, then I'd be stronger. And then Paul's honest and open and transparent enough to tell them. He's begging God for it to be gone. And God says this, Verse 9, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. We cannot discipline foolishness out of a person. We're prone to become like them if we debate with them and we're not careful. Yet we have to engage with them at times so that they're not convinced in their arrogance. What is the answer? Do you know what the real answer is? The answer is they need Jesus' power, not ours. That's the answer. 
They don't need a mind change. They need a heart change. They need to be awakened to their spiritual condition. You'll never debate a fool into the kingdom. Paul is telling them, I know that what really needs to exist is Jesus' strength coming out of me. That's what the Corinthians need. What they need to be reminded of is God's greatness and not their own respectability. They need God's wisdom and not their own knowledge. They need God's nobility and not their own wealth. We need to learn, follow Paul's pattern here of humility in our weaknesses so that we get out of the way of God's power. And I think it happens profoundly through irony. <laughs> the irony here of using their accusation of Paul to point and reveal their own hearts of how they think about weakness is astounding. G.K. Bill does a wonderful job explaining and describing this sense of irony. Retributive and restorative irony ultimately finds its zenith of expression at the cross. Uh, so, for example, the devil uh, is doing all he can to uh, uh, destroy Jesus, and he thinks finally he's come up with the ultimate plan to put him to death on a cross. And yet, just as Haman was hung on his own gallows, the devil himself is hung on his own gallows because at the cross, Jesus is taking the penalty of sin for sinners who've been in captivity to Satan, and he, at his very death, is delivering, paying the price for people who are in Satan's captivity. And so uh, the very thing that Satan thought would destroy uh, Christ and, and, and give Satan the victory is itself a defeat for Satan. He's hung on his own gallows. On the other hand, there's restorative irony, and Christ is the epitome of that. Uh, it looks like he's being cursed, but he's being blessed. It looks like he's being defeated, but he's winning a victory. It looks like at the cross he is weak, but indeed he is strong. And so all of these ironies throughout the scriptures ultimately, ultimately are designed by God's sovereign, wise hand to point to the ultimate irony uh, of his son. Now, I think what's hard is Paul is clearly the master rhetorician. He's the master arguer. I don't have that skill. I don't have that ability. And so how do we do this? How do we, how do we get us out of the way so that Christ's strength and the irony of that moment can be brought to bear on someone's life? They're convinced they're right. We know desperately they're, they're, they're convinced rightness is actually the biggest threat to them. I think we do this when we go to a difficult meeting with someone, a difficult conversation about spiritual things, with an awareness of our own insufficiency, with an awareness that what this person needs in this moment, in this meeting, is not my wisdom. Because really, I don't know enough. I don't know enough about them. I don't know enough about God. I don't know enough about the Word. I don't know enough about wisdom to have the answers. We do it when we go into a meeting aware of our own insufficiencies, our own foolishness, and our own sinfulness. When we go broken to do ministry, the irony of that moment is we're going to do something very hard, but we're trusting God's strength to do the work. We do this when we discipline our children out of a heart that acknowledges our own sinfulness. We do this when we lead with grace toward the failures of others, intimately aware of God's grace toward our failures. I think we do this when we serve humbled by having our feet clean because Jesus has served us. We serve others with this mindset that Christ has washed away my sin in the dirt of my life. We do this when we share the gospel with someone 
or we invite them to church. We are acknowledging our weakness and our inability to fix their life, but we're pointing them to a direction where God can fix their life. Sometimes we do this full well knowing that they will be shocked that we're even having this conversation. I remember getting very broken one time when I was, when I was working a secular job. I had not made it clear that I was a believer. I didn't go about cursing and being profane and vulgar like everyone else. But I was scared and I was intimidated. And there came a point months into the job where I was convicted by God that I needed to invite my friends to church and needed to talk to them about the gospel. And I was embarrassed to do it. And I was too embarrassed to do it. And to my shame, I never did it. My solution was the next job I go to, I won't live that way. I'll let them know day one. You know what I wish I had done? I wish I had realized that God works through broken and weak things and it would have been fine to say, I know you'll probably be shocked that I'm having this conversation with you. Because I'm a weak and fearful person. I should have done this a long time ago, but I was too scared. And I was scared not because of who you are, but because of my own securities. Can I just talk to you about Christ, or can I invite you to come to church with me sometime? I want to just reach out to you, and I'm just going to be honest and broken about it. I think sometimes we realize we're not doing ministry, and we, get, we feel guilty about it, but we don't realize God wants to use our brokenness of the fact we haven't been doing it to work through us as we push forward to do it. I think there's irony in that moment because we're acknowledging it's Christ's strength and not my own. We do this when we ask other people accountability questions while admitting our own struggles. The path to the deceived Corinthians is Christ's strength through Paul's humility, through this ironic moment of using Greek theater and foolishness. I think the irony is sitting right here in this room. God wants to do amazing miracles even this week of ministry. I think the irony is he wants to do it through some very broken and weak people. The path to deceive fools is Christ's strength through our humility. And the question is, as I've worked through the text this week is, will my heart make a mockery of Christ's methods? Or will I get on mission with how he wants to work in me and through me? And it's not through my intellect my abilities or my strength. It's Christ's strength through my weakness.